Today's scripture is reading, scripture reading is from Habakkuk chapter two, verses one through four. Please read with me the verses in bold. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When it seems like God is doing nothing. I've approached this week's uh, sermon preparation with quite a lot of trepidation. I've been overwhelmed by the assignment to preach from a book that is filled with the description of violence in Israel. Preaching on immoral violence committed and condoned by Israelites and committed against Israelites in the midst of a historical moment when the headlines are filled with stories of atro atrocious acts of terrorism and violence and humanitarian crisis unfolding in the same part of the world that Habakkuk wrote about. I've had great trepidation because I do not want anyone to hear today's sermon as some kind of thin allegory either. Uh, one that has one-to-one -one correlations between actors in the book of Habakkuk and actors in events happening in the world today. Biblically speaking, a radical transformation occurred when Christ lived and died and rose again. A transformation in the relationship between God and humanity that, amongst other things, has transformed our understanding of who is included in the number of God's chosen people. That title no longer applies to a specific ethnic group or nation as it did in the time of Habakkuk, but to Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, men and women from every tribe and nation and tongue who have believed in the name of Jesus. So today, when the book of Habakkuk addresses Israel, it's a message that applies to believers, followers of Christ, God's covenant people. I have great trepidation today because God knew what would happen in the world. He knew what would be happening in the world today when Daniel and I put Habakkuk on a preaching schedule for October 22nd, months ago. He knew the deep questions that we would be wrestling with today. And I believe that there may be no better place in Scripture to ask some of those questions like, where is God when violence and evil is happening? 
If God is good and just, why does violence and evil seem to go unchecked? These are not just international political questions. These are personal questions, too. I can still remember the corner of the ceiling of our bedroom in Chicago. I can remember what it looked like because it was the place that I stared at every night when I lay in bed during one of the most difficult seasons of my professional ministry life. I remember that I used to stare at that corner every night and pray, God, where are you? Why does it feel like you're just letting this happen to us? I know the pain of hearing friends decide to abandon their faith because of what God allowed to happen or losing someone that they loved. If God is good, why did he take her? If God is here, why did he get sick? If anything, Habakkuk is proof that the Bible doesn't gloss over these kinds of questions. And while Habakkuk doesn't build an airtight philosophical case for us this morning to solve the problem of evil in the world, as some of us would like him to, he doesn't pretend that there isn't a problem. And who he holds accountable, the place that he looks for the answer to those questions that he has, I think, is the core of the message of the book of Habakkuk. And so this morning, Habakkuk, in three big words, theocracy, theodicy, and theophany. Theocracy. It's a a word with Greek roots, and the Greek roots mean the rule of God. A theocracy is a nation or a government that recognizes God or gods as ultimate authority and religious law as the law of the land. Uh, The king or the priests that represent God rule with God's authority. We can gather from uh, the context of Habakkuk that he lived during the years just before a Babylonian empire invaded Judah and raised and destroyed Jerusalem. Probably lived during the reign of a king named Jehoiakim. You can read about him in 2 Kings 23. One commentator says this about Jehoiakim. He exploited his subjects and had no concern for justice and mercy, and his governors and judges took their cue from him. The result was widespread oppression, injustice, and violence. Widespread oppression, injustice, and violence at the hands of the leaders and the ones who were supposed to be the covenant keepers, the shepherds of God's people, the ones who represented God's authority in the land. Habakkuk 1.1 says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, or you could translate it, the burden that Habakkuk the prophet carried, and then it just begins. No more information about Habakkuk. And probably the most compelling, uh, immediately compelling thing about Habakkuk is who he talks to. In general, a prophet's job was to know God's word or to hear a word from God and then to speak it to the people, to confront them with the covenant commitments that they had made to God. Uh, This is why we named this series on the Minor Prophets Divine Intervention, because so many of these short little books feel like a sit-down-with-God in which he intervenes and confronts our self-destructive lives with hard love. But Habakkuk doesn't talk to the people. He complains to God. 
In fact, if you stumbled into a passage from the first two chapters of Habakkuk without any context, you might mistake it. You might mistakenly think you're in the book of Lamentations or in the book of Job. Habakkuk 1, 2 to 4 says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you'll not hear? Or cry to you violence and you'll not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Uh, The prophet is crying out to God in the midst of the failure of theocracy. In a nation where God's law was supposed to be the law of the land, violence is being done by those who are supposed to represent God, the people who are supposed to shepherd God's people. God's word is absent and being supplanted by the wishes of the powerful. God's justice is distorted by a few and only for a few. Habakkuk cries out and he says, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. God's justice, we've talked about it, mishpat, is supposed to be the application of his law by those who represent him. But instead, the people in authority in Israel ignore the law and use it for their own means. What Habakkuk is describing and decrying here, amongst other things, is what we would call today spiritual abuse. Christian counselor and psychologist Dr. Diane Langberg says, when abuse is done by a pastor or a person who has a position of power in the church, and a part of that power is to tell people who God is and what he's like, and when those skills and that position and everything are used to sanction what is in God's eyes evil, whether that is sexual abuse of someone in the church or whether it's the way that the pastor or the person in power treats people with their mouth, with their arrogance or things like that. It becomes spiritual abuse the way all abuse is. But then it also means that God has been dragged into it. And he, God, is on the side of the abuser. And after all these years, uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Langberg says, I do not have words for the kind of damage that that does to somebody's soul. Habakkuk's words are, Oh Lord, how long will I cry for help and you'll not hear me? Or cry to you violence and you'll not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Habakkuk says, God, what are you going to do about this? A second big word, theodicy. Another word with Greek root that means the vindication of God and The Odyssey is actually the struggle to explain the existence of evil in a God-created good world. Most of us at one time or another, if we're honest, have longed for the opportunity to argue and complain with God, give him a piece of our mind, and get an answer back. I know I thought that that would be most helpful while I was staring at that corner in the ceiling in Chicago. Habakkuk gets the chance. Twice, actually, twice he complains to God about injustice, and twice God answers. But if you pay attention as you read through the book of Habakkuk, you realize that by the time God answers Habakkuk's first complaint, uh, Habakkuk has wandered into something that is way bigger than he bargained for. And God's answer is so difficult, so intense that Habakkuk finds that knowing God's plans hasn't made his burden lighter. It's actually made it more immense. God says to him in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, look among the nations and see. 
Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. First of all, the playing field that God had his eye on was so much bigger than Habakkuk's entanglement. This is bigger than Israel. Look, he says, look among the nations. While the scripture that we read in the Old Testament is the story of the God of Israel, the God who revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the story has always been from the beginning the story about God's plan for the redemption of all of creation and justice and mercy for every nation. Habakkuk's prayer and his complaint like our own is bound up by time and space and by our perspective. Habakkuk can only think linearly in the world that he lives in. And God honors that prayer. He, he invites that prayer from Habakkuk. He welcomes our prayers. But in his response to Habakkuk, he begins to reveal that he's not bound by that linear. That God exists and interacts laterally. He sees the end from the beginning and his purposes and his activity are based on his knowledge and understanding of all of history and creation and redemption and what Brad and Daniel will preach three months from now, he knows today. And he says, he hints at this, he says, wonder and be astounded. You'd not believe it if I told. And then the next line rocks Habakkuk's world. He says, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That's Babylon. And then for the next five verses, God describes the dreaded and despicable violence of Babylon's warfare that has been spreading towards Judah and will overtake them as the consequence, as God's judgment on their covenant-breaking actions. Habakkuk can't believe his ears. Babylon? God was answering his cries to end violence in Israel and injustice in Judah by bringing upon them an even greater violence and evil in Babylon. The cure sounds worse than the illness, and the prophet finds himself lost in theodicy, the struggle to explain the existence of evil in a God-created good world. And this is his second complaint in verse 13 of chapter 1. It says, who, you, who are pure of, you, you who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up man more than the man more righteous than he? And now the book of Habakkuk doesn't attempt much more of a philosophical answer to this conundrum about the problem of evil. And thinkers like Augustine and Alvin Plantinga have done a good job. I'd refer you to them. But Habakkuk, what Habakkuk does as he's mired and stuck in the theodicy, what he does is instructive to us about what to do when we find ourselves in the midst of the crisis of the problem of evil. And the problem of evil is philosophical, but it's also personal. It is world, but it's also heart. And this is where we found ourselves this morning when we began reading in chapter two, Habakkuk says, I'm gonna take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer, what, what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk has placed himself as a watchman on the wall. But unlike the other prophets who saw themselves,
themselves assigned to watch God's people and to call them into account to keep their covenant with God. Habakkuk is looking the other way. Watching to see how, how on earth God is going to keep his covenant to his people. How is God going to judge violence? Is he going to judge the violence that the Babylonians do too? Habakkuk is going to watch and see. He's going to wait and see how God will keep his promise to be their God. How he'll keep his promise to forgive their sin. How he'll keep his promise to bless them and make them a blessing. How? How is that going to work? We don't like watching and waiting. We like talking and doing. We like figuring and explaining. We like forecasting and solving. So what, what does God want to do in our lives and in our hearts by inviting us to watch and wait for him and, and pray for him to act? Well, at least two things, I think. First, I think watching and waiting creates in us a new focus and expectation, an anticipation that God will take action. This is not, Habakkuk is not instructing us to do this instead of acknowledging sin and violence and evil. Habakkuk has spent two chapters engulfed in the brokenness of the world. And this is not instruction to pretend that it's not that bad, but it's an intentional focus on waiting for God in the midst of that brokenness. And this is not a uh, this is not an instruction to do instead of struggling with the intellectual issue of a, a good God operating in and through the evil of a fallen world. Habakkuk is the one that opened up that can and asked that question. But he is also, in his posture and in his placement, decided not to bet his own faith and his own future on his own ability to solve or understand one of humanity's greatest philosophical challenges. This is an intentional focus on the reality that this problem, his personal problem of evil and the world's problem of violence and evil is a spiritual problem as much as it's an intellectual philosophical problem, as much as it's a geopolitical problem. It is a spiritual problem and so he is watching and waiting for God even in the midst of wrestling with explanations. Watching and waiting also implies that he's opening himself up to be corrected. Habakkuk's not prescribing for God how he must respond or demanding that things resolve in a way that he agrees with and he approves with. He's waiting for God to be God. It's a humble posture, but it's not a retreat, it's not a surrender. He is actively looking for and asking for and pursuing God, even if that means being corrected. The image is walking the wall as the watchman. We can often be tempted to decide that God isn't listening and doesn't care because his response or his answer is something that I don't like or don't want to hear. God's answer to our prayers in Chicago were extreme. Following him and extracting ourselves from a toxic leadership situation, from the spiritual abuse that we found ourselves in, led us into a season of unemployed as a season as unemployed house guests of my in-laws. But eleven years later, I can say, honestly, with Joseph in chapter fifty of Genesis, 
I wasn't in the place of God. But what was meant for evil against me, God used for good. He used it to bring me to this place. I don't have a lot more explanation than that. In his watching and waiting and praying and refusing to dismiss God from his covenant promises, Habakkuk demonstrates what it looks like to live in the gulf between our perception of what God ought to have acted like and his control of everything that comes to pass. It reminds me of a line from an old Jars of Clay song. They sing this song. They say, rescue me from waiting on this line. I won't give up on giving you the chance to blow my mind. Let the 11th hour quickly pass me by. I'll find you when I think I'm out of time. It sounds a bit like an echo of God's words to awaiting and watching Habakkuk. In verse 3, he says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. A third word, theophany. Greek roots means the appearance of God. The idea of a theophany is a visible manifestation or appearance of God to humankind. Habakkuk is waiting for a theophany. He's waiting for God to show up. And verse 4 captures the core of the message of this prophetic book, and, I, and it's, a, it's a verse that's quoted throughout Scripture because it captures the core of the gospel message as well. Verse 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk has cried out and complained against evil and abuse and violence of religious leaders who seem to have no relationship with God, no fear of God. They're simply using God for their own ends. He's cried out in complaint against the evil and abuse and violence of the flagrantly godlessness of Babylon. Both demonstrate that living without a relationship with God leads to being puffed up and not upright. The only option in living without a relationship with God is to pretend that we're self-sufficient. Pretend that we can figure this out, that we have a solution to that problem. The only option is that we, to pretend that we understand things that the way they are and we know who's to blame. Not us. Someone else. And this is exactly why we live in a world of fragile power brokers compelled to protect themselves and their little kingdoms and their version of the story. The alternative is to live by faith. And looking back at the book of Habakkuk through the lens of the New Testament, this statement takes on an incredible double meaning. On its face, it refers to the way that Habakkuk has operated and operates and lives in the midst of the evil and violent world that he finds himself in. He operates in a way that refuses to accept that this is just the way things are, that, this, that there is no ought to. He refuses to become numb 
Habakkuk builds his life around the belief that God is who he says he is in his word, that he will prove that his love reaches to the heavens, that his justice flows like the ocean's tide. And so Habakkuk survives by his belief in God's promises of grace. It's what allows him not to be swallowed up in his circumstances because he doesn't understand that lateral view of God, but he knows that it exists and he knows that God has promised to be God. But if Habakkuk teaches us anything, it is that to truly live means to be able to live without fear that the violence and evil of the world will destroy us. To be able to live without fear of God's judgment against the violence and evil that we've cherished in our own hearts and brought into the world in our own actions. How does God make that possible? Well, when the New Testament writers quote Habakkuk, when Paul says, the righteous shall live by faith, and when the book of Hebrews says, the righteous shall live by faith, they are referring not just to the fact that God's promises have proven true in the history between Habakkuk's time and their own, that Babylon is no more and God's people continue, but that God actually entered into the violence of history in the person of Jesus Christ. The ultimate theophany. He entered into history to demonstrate his love and to receive the just, the just punishment for humanity's evil and violence. His violent death on the cross was supposed to be ours. God's justice and his grace collided at the cross. Our violence and sin was laid on him, and the scripture says that by grace... God wants to give us his righteousness, to give us the life he won in his resurrection. And the way that we receive that is by faith, by believing. While many will attempt to live by their own understanding and answer ultimately for their own sin, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith in Jesus Christ. Those who live by faith in Jesus Christ will receive his righteousness. The righteous will live by faith in Jesus Christ who has already answered the question, how long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save. My friends, each day when we gather on Sunday around this table, we gather around God's answer to that question, an answer that without all the details Habakkuk was looking forward to, how will God appear and bring his mercy to us without sacrificing his justice? And each day we gather and we look back on a moment when Christ came and he answered that question. He said, let me show you how God can be both just and merciful. Let me show you that I'm not somewhere far off watching and immune to the violence and evil of the world. I'm right in the middle of it. 